the uh, Guardian on the nature of the food system and, and supply system, system globally. And what was really interesting is there's an illusion of choice that we have as consumers that in most, if not many, if not most product categories out there, three to four companies control 70 to 80% of the market. And they might have 100 brands, sort of a sub choices out there. So we as consumers think we have a lot of choice, but in fact, we don't. It's really, the food system is really captured from the supplier standpoint and the retailer standpoint. And the promise of a public utility with community data commons, that we can flip that. And we as consumers can aggregate our demand and actually ask for what we actually want and then have the supply system deliver it to us. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you for that. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Thanks for joining me today for another discussion around nutrition and health without compromise. Over the course of the last year, we have seen significant rises in food costs and even seen food shortages around the globe. One in seven people in the United States is even considered food insecure. So how can we tackle this really big issue to ensure that people around the globe can get access to great nutrition without compromise, without further damaging our Earth's precious ecosystems? What can be done to nourish America while also replenishing food systems and regenerating our soils? To unravel this story, I am joined today by Jens Smallback. Jens seeks to create a world where social and economic progress are available to all people. He is the founder of New Impact, a humanity benefit nonprofit that seeks to utilize a data-driven tri-sector approach to align the resources available in the private, social, and public sectors to generate superior societal and financial outcomes for all people. Jens first learned of potential for tri-sector solutions when he co-founded Coinstar in 1990, a company that simultaneously benefited the private, public, and nonprofit sectors. He holds an MBA from Stanford University and a BA from Yale University. Jens, welcome to the show. Good morning, Karina. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. Now, I have to say, I stumbled a little bit in this beginning, I think because I'm dealing with the realities of our COVID life these days. And each time my child gets sick, they have to stay home from school. I think a lot about the impact that we are having in our daily lives when it comes to people that are are food insecure, that can't get the proper nutrition, and that are therefore more at risk for something as debilitating as something like COVID. So I'm really curious for what this path has meant to you, how you landed here, really trying to solve this big problem, and how this particular perspective, this trifecta, so to speak, can help us to do that. Thanks for the introduction, Karina. I've been really looking forward to chatting with you about this one particular solution. As you know, at New Impact, we think about ourselves as business model innovators. We're um, in a public charity, 501c3, and we encourage organizations to think about you know, solving problems using the best resources available, whether that comes from private sector companies or social sector nonprofits or government. And in fact, we think it's important that we sort of use a whole of society approach and our, our best resources out there to be applied to big problems. And this question of food insecurity is, is really huge. And as you mentioned in your intro, one in seven people in the U.S., 
alone is food insecure. And when you look at the system overall, I mean, roughly around 40% of the food that we manufacture is actually wasted, which has huge implications for cost and, and climate. And when you go even a little bit further into it, you'll find that only between 10 and 20% of the food that's actually produced actually gets into somebody's stomach. So there's, you know, as, as efficient as our food system is perceived to be, we can walk into many supermarkets and food stores and see, you know, an abundance of food on the shelves. That sort of masks a lot of underlying market failures in the food system that show up in our daily lives in terms of people who don't have access or bad nutrition, and importantly, really long-term substantial health care costs. And in many ways, the health care costs to a, a food system that's less than optimal are, are really huge. So I'm happy to dive in and, and talk about and share with you about this particular project we've been working on. Well, I know that the rising health care costs are not going away anytime soon. If you average all money spent on health care by Americans, it is nearly $1,000 per capita. Yeah. And that is $1,000 per capita per month, I should say, which is a huge amount. And so if you were to ask people, do you have $1,000 a month to spend on health care? Most of them are going to say, absolutely not. And if I did, I'd rather spend it on something else. <laughs> yeah. And the reality is people don't like to talk about it, but in the U.S. as a country, we have, you know, a fair bit of obesity, either a little bit of overweight or a lot of overweight. And our food system feeds into, no pun intended, part of that problem of people not really making the best choices for the body. And why is that? So we've got a big food system. It's not driving great health outcomes individually in people's lives. And those health outcomes are super expensive and food's expensive. And a lot of it gets wasted and not everybody gets access to it. So there's room for improvement in terms of how our food system works in the U.S. and beyond, for sure. Yes, certainly. So when we connected on my earlier podcast interview with you on my Care More Be Better show, another show that I host, we talked about this public utility concept that you're working to unfold, I believe, in Colorado. So I'd love for you to talk more about that. How can we use this type of system, a more public utility approach to change this and to ultimately erase or eradicate food insecurity. So I'm really excited to talk with you about this. We, for background, we were asked about a year ago by the Mortgage Family Foundation, which is based in, in Denver, to work with a local food bank, a very innovative food bank, Metro Caring, to take a look at this question of food insecurity. And they had gotten very interested in the work of a professor named John Eichert, who's been writing about, he's an agricultural economist, and he's been suggesting that this concept of using a utility mechanism for food uh, might be worthwhile. And if you think back to utilities in the U.S., we used utility mechanisms for clean water to bring water to people. We used utility mechanisms to bring power and to bring electrification to rural areas. And utilities are these really sort of interesting quasi-public entity that is that has some unique aspects that allows a lot of people to get access. So he'd been writing for years about this idea of a of a food utility, but hadn't done sort of the deeper work in terms of what a business model might look like. So the Mortgage Family Foundation asked New Impact to you know, advise them, along with Metro Caring, to look at what could we possibly do to create a public food utility that could start to address some of these some of these market failures. And so we dove into the project with a, a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of curiosity about you know what this might look like. And what we found was enormous potential. So as, as I walk through this today, I want to let you know up front that 
the idea started small and it got to be really big, really transformative in terms of the power of it. And so we're going to talk about a lot of things today. There are a hundred reasons why this needs to get tested. There's lots of assumptions out there. There's lots of holes to be poked at. But what's exciting is we're now moving into a phase two. We're initiating our first pilot test. And the Colorado food cluster has gotten very interested in this. And they're going to be testing some elements of this. We're actually have a, a meeting in Denver for our initial kickoff meeting, which I'm really looking forward to next week. And we're really hopeful that we can get a number of pilots stood up around the country to start to explore different elements of what this public food utility might look like. So maybe let me just give you some background in terms of what we're thinking about when we talk about the utility for food. Before you do, let me ask a question. For the skeptics that might be listening, they could be saying something like, oh, well, this sounds like socialism. And yet we subsidize corn and wheat and potatoes and all sorts of foods, which also could sound like socialism. So what would you say to that person before we even begin deepening this discussion? What is this? What are you trying to do here? It's a great question because if, if, I mean, not only have I been called a socialist, I've actually been called a communist. Um, (laughs) I want to hear everybody that I'm actually a capitalist and I believe in capitalism a lot. Um, I spent most of my life in the private sector and capitalism works great in many, many aspects. And as we lean into this concept of a public food utility, I want to assure you there are market forces involved here. And the thing that we're really interested in is we think it can actually pay for itself outside of tax dollars. So we think this can be a self-funding mechanism for food that addresses food insecurity and health and climate at a very large level. And it's funded by data. So we'll get into what that actually looks like. So yeah, when people, we have a ton of information on our website, newimpact.care. If people go to the, to our catalyst projects and they can click on the community food utility piece, they'll go into a share page. And there are easily 10 to 20 hours of reading on there in terms of the project. Everything we do is a public good so people can dive into it. So, yeah, as we go through this conversation, some of the things we talk about, like universal basic food, is going to sound like an absolutely crazy concept. But I would encourage people just to hang with us, hold the questions, and lean into what the possibility is. As we've been working on this for more than a year now, we've been like, oh, this is actually could really be a big deal. But there's lots of questions out there, and there's lots of reasons to be skeptical. But there are also many more reasons, I think, to be optimistic. Well, I'll do my best to harness my skeptic's hat so I can help tell that story with you. (laughs) Yeah, well, keep the skeptic's hat on. I mean, we're deep skeptics. We try to ask ourselves a lot of questions. In fact, on that website, we have sort of a, a top 10 list of questions. We, we lay out what the concept is. We have some assumptions that's out there. And we have a sort of a top 10 list of you know questions that, that could be researched or explored in a pilot. And that's what we're going to start to do in phase two in Colorado is we're going to pick off two or three of those questions and start to explore that. And we hope, again, to get a number of pilots going and have people share like, hey, here's what worked well in Colorado. Here's something else that got maybe tested in West Virginia or Texas. And how can we learn this together? Because if we're right and there's something here, this is a complete game changer. Well, it sounds very exciting. And I have to say the thing that I have been frustrated with by a lot of the programs that do exist for foods for people who are food insecure is that, you know, you rely so much on canned goods or grains and, you know, big sacks of rice or a giant bag of onions that I've seen given away to people who are struggling with food insecurity. And I'm thinking, what are they going to do with that giant bag of onions? I mean, how is this the food that can nourish them? And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how this whole system can work and how we can get healthy whole foods into the hands of people that need it most. It's really interesting. So we started, we did a a lot of interviews. We talked to probably 40 or 50 experts throughout the food system. 
both on the for-profit, not-for-profit, and public sector size. And we ended up interviewing a lot of people who were food insecure. And we were particularly looking initially at the charitable food model and the food rescue model. So a lot of food banks will get their their food from supermarkets or restaurants where there's extra food or excess food or waste. And that food can be picked up at the back of the supermarket and taken to the, to the charity. And that, that food is available in, in a food bank. And the charities will also buy food directly from a variety of systems. There's a big, complicated food rescue, charitable food uh, network out there. But it is really uh, shockingly inefficient. There's a lot of problems with it. You know, for instance, you know, one of the things we found is that if you're a supermarket and you're donating food, your tax break base is based upon weight. So you're you're incented to donate a two liter bottle of soda because it weighs a lot as opposed to, you know, a bundle of carrots or something that might be more nutrition. And that's just sort of the way the system got mm-hmm. set up. So even the tax incentives aren't great for it. But if you look at the life of someone who is food insecure, it's really complicated. I mean, we talked to a lot of shoppers. I remember one in particular said, you know, you know, I have to go to the food bank to get, you know, certain types of food on this day of the week. And then I've mapped out all my local supermarkets. And I know that this chain has a, you know, discount on X food, you know, on Tuesdays. And Y chain has a discount on different foods on different days. In fact, I show up before, you know, 10 a.m. And this particular store, because I know the sprinklers go off at 10 a.m. And I don't want to pay extra for the for the weight of the food. And there's all this effort that goes into trying to get fresh, healthy, desired food. And it's tricky. And the other thing that became really clear is that the food system, in a sense, has been captured by the suppliers. And they've done a great job creating food that we want to eat and essentially, you know, our our, um, our our mouths or our brains have been hacked to, you know, eat food. We call it the Doritos problem. It's like, the engineered you know, foods that have that perfect balance of salt, sugar, and fat. Yeah. Right. And that's not necessarily the best thing for you. So we started um, asking ourselves a, a really big question, which is what would the world look like if every person had healthier, nutritious, desired food in their stomach three times a day. And so we'll talk about how we get there. But if you could actually make that happen, what are the benefits of that? And the benefits of that are large. Lots of long-term health benefits really save the system a lot. And how Because it's get- less expensive to eat at Taco Bell than it is to eat a nutritious food. That's yeah. essentially what we've come to, right? Yeah, yeah. So it, that's interesting too. You mentioned that. So, you know, the average American family spends around $5,000 on food a year. Half of that is food at home, just prepared food. And half of that, that is roughly half of that is food that's eaten out, fast food or whatever the restaurant type things out there. So there's a whole set of questions around prepared food at home versus food that's on the go. But as we started thinking through what a system could look like, we were looking at this question about, you know, what's it like, you know, if you look at the SNAP program or the WIC programs, they essentially give money to people to actually buy more food. But as we looked at the food system too, not only is it captured in terms of taste, but there is there are tremendous costs in the food system. You think about all the branding, all the advertising, all the packaging, all the shipping, all the transportation, and the actual cost of the food itself is not as big as if you think about a dollar, it's a lot less depending on the product than the entire piece of it. So it's like, gee, could we actually reduce the cost of the food if we could get it down to its simplest piece and take some of that out of there. So we started to postulate the idea of what we call universal basic food. Universal basic income has been a concept that's been put out for a long time. But we said, gee, what would it be like for a community? And let's just think about something like Denver County, a geographic area, had access to universal basic food that was free. So let's say the community had selected in common, we can talk about the selection process, 
a hundred items that were available that were high quality, nutritious, and desired that were available in local in a subset of local supermarkets and other uh, retail depots for free. What would that actually look like? And would that be powerful for people to be able to just access that? So you wouldn't have to go to a charity bank. You wouldn't have to go through a SNAP program. You could actually just go get free food. So it's a it's a radical, radical idea that's out there. But we started thinking, hmm, there's a lot of power that could an outcome. So when we think about a public utility, one of the things we think, one of the first things we think it could offer to community is this concept of universal basic food. So let's just stop and talk about that for a moment. How would that actually work? We think there could be a voting mechanism that utility runs that says, hey, you know, we want brown eggs in our community or we want, you know, asparagus or those things. And you have to have culturally relevant food and there's a bunch of nuances around that. But let's just say a group of people in an area could select 100 items that would be available through the year and there could be standards set around that. So it could be locally sourced. And this isn't you know, low cost, low quality, you know, government cheese. This is actually high quality food that everybody would want to eat. So what could that actually look like? So that's kind of the first function that we think a community food utility could look like. People want choice. And we think that there are many, many other items to buy out there. So we think that a public utility could also offer discounted foods, just coupons and whatnot, so they could buy other types of foods they wanted to to supplement those those sort of things. And what we realized in doing this is that there's so much data in the food system that if the utility could actually have the data for the users and aggregate the demand of what we all want as people, then there's a chance for actually the suppliers and the producers and retailers to actually feed what people want. And we got very interested in this idea of aggregating the demand of food in an area to make it really helpful to people out there. So those are the basics of what we're talking about. So there'd be an app that everybody would have available so they could actually order their uh, their universal basic food, go pick it up at the store. And we'll get into the contracting with the retailers and whatnot. They'd be able to get discounts. Other things, there'd be some other components on the app that would allow them like, you know, cooking classes and ideas with that. And this could be a really powerful way for them to get this coming together. I can show you a little app and kind of demo how this would work. And then we can talk about, you know, how we would actually make this function as a viable business model that that pays for itself. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. So let's give that a whirl now and I'll do my best to also help you describe this for people listening to the podcast. And for those of you listening, you can always hit the pause button, go to YouTube and watch it on screen right now. And in addition, we have a little demo on our website so people can watch that go through. But I think it would help bring it to life. It's going to raise a bunch of questions like how do we actually do this? We'll get into But I think let's just kind of set the stage for, you know, if you can imagine an end state where this is actually the case, then the question is, if we like this, how would we get there? Very good. Let's say you were in Denver and there was this thing called Denver County Community Food Utility, which everyone in the county belongs to. So it's geographically based and it is essentially the, you know, the trusted friend and advisor for food for everybody living in the county. And you could open up your phone and you could say, it's welcome to a universal basic food and other services, and you can get great food for free. So you can then log in and you could see a variety of services that the public utility would offer to you. We've been talking about the uh, UBF or the Universal Basic Food Offering. That's the primary piece. 
but you could also get tips on cooking, um, on ideas and recipes and nutrition advice about how to prepare that food. There could be some social media aspects of it. You could also get discounted food, so coupons and whatnot that could be available at any retailer. We think that with the data behind this, that the utility could actually not only pay for this program, but might even be able to generate um, positive cash flow on a profit and actually create a monthly cash payment or a dividend. There could be other social services or government services available and a profile and a QR code. So briefly, if you were to want to order some food, you could, you know, simply go on to the app and say, gee, I'm really interested in ordering some food. I might want some eggs. And in this case, part of the 100 items might be organic brown eggs, and you could simply add them to your cart. You might choose to get some apples at the store, and you can add those to your cart. You might force, let's say, some spinach and add that to the cart. And you might choose to have some beef and because the community has selected beef. So you can add that to the cart. And then you can go take a peek at your cart and you can see that you've ordered two dozen eggs and four apples and a pound of beef and some spinach. And then you can select where this would be available. And what's shown here is a major supermarket, which is would be part of the network, local nonprofit and a city bodega. And importantly, this program would not be available at all retailers. The retailers would actually compete for the contract to deliver this UBF food to end users, and they would pay the utility for the right to deliver um, this food. And so we think roughly one in five stores of the existing stores out there would have the ability to actually be a partner with the utility to deliver this food for people. And part of the stipulation would make sure that these food depots would be available within 10 minutes of public transportation throughout the entire county, right? So you could start to solve for food deserts. So you could basically say, hey, I've ordered this food, and you could literally go to the store that you select the next day and pick up the items right off the shelf and scan your QR code and buy other products from your store. It would be a tremendous competitive advantage for the retailers who had bought into the program to get people coming in for these 300 items because there's obviously 10,000 other items for sale in the store and they could you know, have a, a lot of extra traffic that, that's doing that. So you could submit that piece and it would thank you for the order and it would tell you you could come down and uh, pick up the food the next day. It would tell you the aisle and location to make it really easy to shop. So that's the basics of what it would happen. Any kind of just questions about how that could actually work, Karina, before I show you some of the other elements of this. Well, I think some of the criticism that could come up is a question of fairness, right? This is something that I actually tackled on my other show, as well as I met with Ethan Welty, who's the co-founder of a company that also got its start in Colorado called fallingfruit.org. And they were just ultimately cataloging fruit trees in their neighborhoods and when they come into fruit and when they're therefore ready to pick to make that information available to entire communities around the globe. And what they confronted from time to time was this big question of whether it was fair that somebody could go and harvest all of this fruit and then somebody else in the community might not have access. And so I think you're tackling this in one phase by saying, okay, this could be available to everybody. And yet... You know, how do we erase the stigma that might be associated with that the same way that we see something from a WIC program or something that like SNAP that is government funded and has this sort of negative association around it? 
So it's a great question. We heard a lot about stigma. So part of the stigma answer and the fairness answer is this UBF program would be available to all residents, regardless of income. So if you're the wealthiest person or the poorest person in the county, everybody as a right has the right to this universal basic food. And there, the idea would be there is no stigma attached to this. And by bringing in people of higher income, we would be wanting to make sure the food was of the highest quality. So think about this as high quality, highly nutritious food that would appeal to many, many people throughout uh, the county. So the idea, instead of focusing on, you know, low income, I mean, a low quality food for low income people, this is high quality, nutritious food for all. So truly universal. So that's part of the way that we're thinking about this fairness question, right? And we get the question like, what if someone takes more than their fair share, or if you, you know, end up you know, buying 10 times as many apples as you need and then sell them on eBay and there's a bunch of questions. Right. I mean, that's the prevention of fraud, essentially. So you know how the product is, this product or this service is intended to work, right? And then there are always going to be those that work to take advantage of it. And so... Imagine you're born, all right? mm -hmm. And there's a different program for young kids and babies, which we can get into. But essentially, if you knew for the rest of your life that you had access to UBF food and you could save, you know, $5,000 a year, this would be a huge, powerful, very valuable valuable program that some retailers and some manufacturers would be um, able to do. Now, importantly, in this voting mechanism, right, the utility would run this voting mechanism and would say, okay, you know, we in, in, um, you know, Denver County want, you know, organic brown eggs, right? And then they would work with a contract with the retailers, right? The retailers would bid, and there's four or five major retailers out there, and it'd be a winning group that would do it. And then they, in turn, would contract with the suppliers to say, okay, we want organic brown eggs. We don't want it branded. We don't want, you know, all the different types of packaging. We want bulk. Here these things are that are out there. And then they would actually put the information out into the supplier network and be able to supply that right. So there's no branding. There's no advertising. All of this is non-branded, essentially private label to the uh, private label to the utility. And the power of that is that in the food system, Today, there a lot of the waste is driven by the fact that no one has a bird's eye view of all the data and information. Right now, no store wants to be out of stock of everything. So people overorder the basil and they throw some away and stuff, and which drives an incredible amount of waste. And yet, if we can aggregate the demand of everyone in the county to say, this is how many eggs that, that we're looking for, right? Then you have a market mechanism that you can send out to the suppliers and the retailers say, this is what we actually want. And one of the things we often hear on the supply side is people have contracts, they can't figure things out, the demand goes all around. But this idea that we've aggregated consumer demand for food in a central utility or a central organization that represents the consumer's interests is really, really powerful. And by aggregating the data with this stuff, that's actually what drives the economic value out there. I could also see, though, the benefit of not making it a private labeled situation where brands might actually want to get involved in something like this and stake their claim to say, you know, this is important to me. We believe in what you're doing. And therefore, you know, we look at this as kind of a sampling effort. People are going to get to try our product that we've spent all this money producing and bringing to market. And we want that differentiation. Yeah. So, so what would you let, say to me, that? It's a great segue. So let me show you let me show you the next part of this piece. So importantly, this universal basic food would only cover roughly a hundred items uh, out there. So it would only cover a hundred items. And those hundred items would not have to be voted on the 
community, but it would also have to pass a nutrition group. So the idea is that if you only ate those 100 items, this would be the freshest, healthiest, balanced set of nutrition that's available to you for free, right? And we're actually thinking it's for free because we want to give consumers a big enough incentive to say, this is the type of stuff that we want to put into our body. Now, people are going to want to buy other stuff. So let's take a look at the brands. You were mentioning brands. So there can be discounted food here mm-hmm. for other brands. So let's say you wanted to buy Bounty paper towels or Amy's organic beans or Berlin's uh, spaghetti that's available either at the existing retailers who are part of the utility program or at the non-utility program retailers. So this is a way to essentially for these brands and other retailers to advertise and promote as they do today. I mean, there's tons of coupons to go out through, you know, Sunday newspapers through the FSI coupons. There's mm. tons of advertising online. And people would be able to select and then be able to go shop and actually save money on these other products and and other brands out there. Well, by building that in, theoretically, a company could choose to offer a smaller size of something for free, you know, and 100% discount and limit one per customer or something to that effect. Exactly. And what's really interesting about this, too, is if you think about the data of advertising in the modern world, as consumers, you know, everybody talks about we're all targeted down to this sort of, you know, customized, personalized stuff. But by being so targeted, consumers have lost all their power, right? I Mm -hmm. have an individual choice of one. But if the utility can aggregate all the shopping information from those consumers, right, because part of the price of admissions, the utility is the retailers would have to share the data, terms of what that's people right. are buying that's in there and the utility can go off to you know the brands and say gee if you want to advertise you know this type of cooking oil or this type of um, salty snacks or this type of thing we will run your advertising you're going to pay us the utility to do this and then the consumer is going to get the benefit hmm. so right now if you think about you know google and amazon and all this stuff or facebook you know we as customers we as people are the products and we're being right. And if we can reverse that and say, hey, we actually want to get the benefit of this, right? So we're going to show up and you can advertise to us, but you're going to pay us for the right to advertise to us as opposed to the company. And this is where this utility becomes really powerful because the utility is designed to have a monopoly. That's why they exist out there. So essentially, the excess profit the utility could uh, generate from this, we think, can actually be shared as essentially as a dividend. This is a modern form of a co-op that's or a commons that's based on data. So, I mean, I happen to know people who are PhDs in public health and things along these lines. And I tend to question why they haven't come up with an idea <laughs> that could be as transformative like this with all their work and frustration over the years, because many of them have essentially come to say, like, look, part of the reason we have such a health problem in this country is that people don't have access to a balanced diet. And that's a controversial statement because you'd say, oh, well, no, everybody has a right to go out there and buy food. But when their food might be 40 or 50 percent of their income or even more in some cases, that becomes increasingly difficult and then can also create a situation where people can't afford to both keep food on their plate and a roof over their head and then therefore trend to living in their vehicles and end up on the street. And so I want to talk about this, not because I think that all problems can be solved by this one thing, but because it relates to health. It also relates to this other subject, which is getting that right nutrition. And in many cases, it's too expensive to get all the right nutrition and then also supplement where you're weak. And so how would you you advise people as are even considering 
whether something like this can pass through legislation, come through the environment, actually be in the public sector. How would you advise them to think about this, get involved, engage? You know, what can they do? Yeah, there's a lot here. So if you, and I keep referring to our website, but we again have extensive information. We have a white paper that describes the concept. We also have a course, PowerPoint deck. And I think on slide 29 of the PowerPoint deck, we've got kind of top 10 things to, to test here. The idea is it's a radical idea. It's a transformative idea. And it sounds, you know, insane. In fact, even when we were coming up with it, we're like, does this really make sense? But the more we've leaned into it, we think it really does. So what we're really hoping for is just like we're doing in Colorado, we're having a pilot that's getting stood up in one area. We think it'd be really interesting in other regions around the country to find a retailer who might be interested in this because the retailers who get this are going to dramatically win competitively over their uh, fellow retailers to find more food banks, to find more foundations, to find more public health officials who are interested in this. We had a really set of fascinating conversations uh, with Denver um, with Denver Health, which is the largest health entity in Denver. And what they were saying is they were having kids you know, showing up already with all these problems. And so they were trying to say, well, how can we do with this? And we're like, deal with it. We're like, well, what if you solve the problem upstream and you actually had those kids getting access to fresh, healthy, nutritious food from the get-go, right? How much could that save in the system? And the answer is a lot. A lot, yeah. Yeah. Once you start to think through what a more efficient food system would be, it's good for people. It's good for energy. It makes our food system way more efficient. We think it could actually pay for itself. We think it'd be good for climate. But the biggest benefit we found actually was the long-term healthcare costs and savings. And that's a very long, that's a very long tail. Like that takes years and years and years to show up. But this concept of, you know, free universal basic food for hundred items, not everything. And then with choice and brand on top of that, and backed up by what we're calling this uh, community data commons. It solves a lot of problems. Have but there been conversations platform. about including something like a general supplement, like a multivitamin or an omega-3 in yeah. this space? Yeah, I think that would make it make a lot of sense for uh, vitamins to be included in this. Plus, you know, just the idea of, of balancing the nutrition, right? Nutraceuticals and sort of the right balance of food. And it has an education component as well. I could, you know, back in the app, I could show you a couple of the things. It was really interesting. You know, the nonprofit sector it has really strong resources around cooking and cooking classes and cooking ideas and nutrition training. So part of the idea on that app is that we could bring that information to people, right, right on their phone, uh, right in their home. We think the social elements, people like to share recipes and ideas and tips and it could be that, you know, if you've got the following 10 types of items available in, in your county, here's different ways to combine them, right? There's lots of sort of ethnic and cultural needs for food. So we've looked at, you know, something called the quadratic voting systems to make sure that, you know, everyone's voice is heard and that and the choice is maintained. And importantly, this becomes dramatically equitable food access and hopefully reducing uh, stigma around it. Well, I think also it would be important to balance that with some, well, critical information from the public health sector, which is you need to make sure that you're hitting these core nutrition points, correct? Yeah. So just to ensure that you're covering your bases and that you're supporting someone who, let's say, doesn't eat meat and they're still able to get a good protein right. as part right. of the program. Let me show you just a couple other things and then I'll stop with, with the app demo. But we think there's, if you did have an app like this that was being run by utility Right. It can also, I wanted to point out here, we could actually, we think we could actually generate cash, right? Where you could actually have sort of um, an income that comes out of this, which we think could be quite interesting. 
But there could be other services, you know, access to housing, jobs, childcare, transportation. And importantly, we think there could actually be an emergency food supply backed up by the utility as well. One of the interesting models that we looked at was internationally. In in Switzerland, the country keeps seven years of emergency food supply in the system, in the supermarkets, which is really clever. And when we were doing this, uh, Texas had just been hit by the ice storms and the supply chain was shut down. So we're like, it would be interesting, could a utility actually only provide the discounted food and the universal basic food and the cash and have the data commons, but could actually be a sort of a backup system in terms of wildfires or floods or, or snowstorms. And we think there's an element that's that's in there as well. Wow. So those are the five components of the of the utility, the universal basic food, the discount piece, the cash dividends, the emergency food supply. And what powers it all, Karina, which is so important, is this notion of aggregated consumer data. And, you know, just on a personal note, when I look at what's happened to our data as consumers over the last 20 years in this country, I mean, data is the new oil of the 21st century. And we've allowed our data to essentially become the right and property of, of other people. And just like, you know, property rights became a big deal for us individually as people so we could, you know, own land and, and those sorts of things. I think the data rights are really important too. And I think this community data commons run by a public utility could be a really, really powerful way to pay for all of this stuff and actually give some power to people and have sort of the, the system serve people as opposed to being fractionalized. So are we talking about census data here or are we talking about data that's captured from cell phones? Like what are we, what are we talking about? So the data that we're talking about is actually the food purchase data. So we think if, if, if you're the consumer, right, and you opt into the utility, if you want to be part of this, right, you could say, hey, utility, it's okay for me to share my data with you, the utility, like, you know, the water utility, you know, or the power utility. You can't sell it to anybody, but go off and represent me and all my other fellow residents and, and, and citizens and go off and get me the best deals um, based on the stuff that I like to buy. So I have a Danish background. So, you know, I like herring, which is my cultural food. So, <laughs> you know, not a lot of the people are going to love pickled herring, pickled right? herring out there. Yeah, I love I it too. <laughs> so it's really hard for the herring producer to find me, right? But if they could go to the utility and they say, okay, give me that, you know, 1% of people in the utility that actually want herring, then they can actually get a promotion or a discount or an offer to me uh, directly. But I'm not being sold, right? They don't know who I am. They have to go through the utility. So essentially, the the utility becomes the trusted friend and advisor for all of us consumers, if you trust the utility to actually do that. And And because it's not in the public sector, it's not like the data is being sold just to the latest person who wants to capture that and and sell 16 different services to you. Yeah. And, and and neat thing about as we as we got into this stuff, we didn't know much about utilities, but utilities are regulated. And we think that there's an important component of, of regulations that make sure that, that the utility is doing what it's supposed to do. Essentially, the, the, the utility becomes, you know, it's a big software company and it's going to need to contract with software providers and those sort of things uh, to make it work. But it's not actually handling any physical food. It's running contracts with the retailers. It's setting standards. We think the standard setting is really important. Mm-hmm. So it can say, hey, you know, we really want, if like you mentioned beef, some people don't eat beef, some people do, some people think it's bad for climate, some people think it's, it's, it's good with the community. One of the beef, they could say, we do want it locally sourced. We do want it grass fed. And so the food that's going to be, the beef that's going to be free is going to meet these sort of standards um, out there. So that standard setting function, we think is also really important. 
Well, that's incredible. Now, I saw in the app, as you were featuring it here, an example of a King Supers. And so I wonder if they are, if they've already agreed to be part of this test. Are, is that, are you that far along or is this? You're not just that, that far along. But what we'd love to do as part of the pilot is there are many, many supermarkets in the U.S., And for this to work, and this comes in on the market forces piece, often private sector companies will bid on contracts with public entities like for garbage or for cable. And we think it's going to be important for the private sector supermarkets. And there's, you know, vast variety of supermarkets out there. You mentioned, you know, King Super and Denver's also Safeway and Walmart and other ones out there to bid for the right. Imagine you're the main supermarket in town that has the 300 items. How much will your foot traffic go up? How many more people come to your store because you've got the 300 items and buy the extra stuff? Well, frankly, by talking to King Supers, if you are doing that, they are almost a test arm of Kroger, which is the largest grocery chain in the United States. So that wouldn't be necessarily a bad thing. And I could see the benefit to them as well. But, you know, that includes somebody like Fred Meyer. They might then test it in the Pacific Northwest, right, Right. with their Fred Meyer chain and then Harris Teeter in the Southeast. And it kind of continues on and you can build upon it, show successes, and ultimately it could be universally adopted. I'll go to the flip side. Imagine, again, because we think only about one in five of the existing stores would do this, would actually win the contract. And again, there's a variety of things they'd have to do to win the contract, and they'd pay the utility for the right to deliver this. This food would be free to them. It's not a loss leader, right? It's actually fully paid for by the utility. Yeah, it just has to take up the space, which they have to account for as well. Mm-hmm. Let's take up the space with that. But imagine you're the retailer who doesn't get the contract and you're right across the street. Think about, you know, Chicago, where you got where any, any major city where you've got competing supermarkets. If one store has the UVF food and the other doesn't, there's going to be a fairly significant swing in terms of uh, foot traffic out there. And that's part of the market force pieces that's that's built into the utilities so the stores can actually compete. Frankly, as a country, we have way too many stores. We are overstored, which is part of the waste in the system. And we're overstored with you know more products than we, than we actually need as well. So we're hopeful, again, that we've got this you know phase one pilot uh, coming up here in Denver. If anybody's interested in their region, whether they're a retailer or a nonprofit, charitable bank, or a foundation, um, we think that there can be a, what we're calling a coalition of the willing who is interested in this concept. Realistically, I mean, there are, you know, we could go through, you know, 100 reasons why this would fail. It'll take 10 to 15 years if you were imagine this in every county in the country, in the U.S., lots of implementation problems, lots of scale problems, lots of, lots of issues that are out there. But if we can create a coalition of the willing that's willing to test some of the stuff and learn and share, then we can start to make some progress. And again, the thing, we, the thing that we found in terms of the biggest sort of payment piece was not only, only the data side, but the long-term health benefits, which could really have an impact on insurance costs, which you were talking about up front. And then this, frankly, people's lives. You know, how much would people's lives be better if they had, you know, access to healthier food for free? So we're excited by it. The other thing I just mentioned, Karina, is... We think that there's so many of the new technologies coming out with with Web3 and blockchain stuff that we are actually, if we can get this data aggregated on behalf of consumers and protected in in a utility, we think there's a really interesting opportunity for a couple of tech companies to essentially build the picks and shovels that would be needed to pull this off. And so it feels like there's a lot of things that are coming together right now between big data, technology, 
food costs, healthcare costs. And we think this is one of the most transformative things that we thought about. Lots crazy, lots of reasons why it could fail, but we think it's absolutely worth testing. You have to put the idea out there first, and then it can percolate among the minds of everybody who's listening. And ultimately, it sounds really incredible. I hope that you're able to prove some success in a single market and take it from there. Denver sounds exciting. And the other thing I'd give your listeners is, you know, we're very interested in sharing the concept uh, very broadly. Again, everything we do at New Impact is a public good. But if there are food conferences out there, we think this could be really interesting. Several of the experts we interviewed were uh, deeply embedded in the university systems and food researchers. I think there could be research done on this. We think it could be talked about, uh, discussed and uh, modified and and, and learned about. It's a big Mm -hmm. idea. It's going to change. But we'd love to see it get out there and get tested. Love it. Now, if there was one thing that you wanted to leave our audience with before we wrap today, what what might that be? I would say if they're interested in this approach, I would leave them with the idea of come to our website, take a look at the project. You know, our overall reason for being at New Impact, again, this is, you know, solving problems at scale using, you know, resources from all three sectors. This food utility and universal basic food is one of the biggest ideas and projects out there. And I'd really encourage people to do a couple of things. One is think about a local pilot. If they're interested, you know, as an organization, we're happy to provide um, advice and coaching. This idea needs a lot more work, frankly, a lot more funding to get out there. And lastly, I would say if there's anybody in the community who is tech minded and understands the power of big data, I think this is one of the most compelling applications that could be built, which could really be transformative. And they can reach out and contact us and we'd be happy to chat with them. Well, thank you so much for joining me and for this powerful discussion today, Jens. I'm very excited to see what comes next and hope you'll come on again when you have more news to share. We look forward to it. Yeah, just keep thinking about the idea of universal basic food for everybody. Pretty cool. Perfect. As always, I will be sure to include links to everything we discussed today in show notes, including direct links to newimpact.care. I might also include some other suggested reading for those of you that are interested specifically in these concepts more broadly. Visit orlonutrition.com for our complete blog and this episode, including features you won't find anywhere else. You can find the link to our YouTube page so you can watch this quite easily from there as well. Thank you for joining us on this journey. If you have any questions for me or for Jens, You can also always just send them to hello at orlonutrition.com and I will get right back to you. As we close today's show, I hope that you'll raise a cup of your favorite beverage with me, coffee, tea, or more. As I say my parting words, here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or.